0: Comics history, where we like to talk about some weird comics history every week on the feed for the weird science DC comics.com podcast. We're also regular contributors to the website, and Chris and I have a segment every podcast every week on their podcast called the Cosmic Treadmill. And if you're subscribed to the Weird Science DC Comics.com podcast through Stitcher, iTunes, Podbean, and whatever else, you should also this should also show up in your feed. Uh, last week we talked a little bit about comic books before World War II and before the Comics Code Authority uh, to set the stage for what looks like it'll be a five-part minimum uh, <laughs> podcast about the Comics Code and, and the things you know surrounding it. Um, so last week what we did uh, is uh, we talked about how comics in the early 40s were mainly patriotic pamphlets and just jingoistic pro-American stuff, you know, uh, Captain America punching Hitler and... Superman fighting fifth columnists and spies and getting rid of submarines uh, on the home front. Uh, And men went to war, women went to work, and so there was uh, a lot of idle time for children. uh, Created a kind of new class of kids just hanging around with not much to do, latchkey kids, we would have called them in our time. And this kind of gave them some extra time to read comic books, which were tremendously
1: popular. Yeah, we also uh, brought up Frederick Wortham, but I don't think we really uh, we didn't really talk about who he was. We didn't introduce him properly, I feel. Yeah, we, um, we did mess up a little bit. Uh... <laughs> we took for granted that everyone would know who he is just uh, just based upon his name. And, uh, you know, for those who don't, he was one of the early comic uh, crusader, anti-comic crusaders, and he's usually the personification of the anti-comic movement of the mid-50s. Uh, he was also a well-respected and highly educated psychologist. He had a he had a hell of a resume. Um, he opened a, uh, a mental health clinic in Harlem called the LaFarge Clinic, which was notable for uh, really being a, a very integrated uh, clinic. Uh, yeah, you I, know, being in Harlem, it's it there is a certain demographic there that was largely ignored by the you know the psychological and medical community to to an extent.
0: For sure, and, at, at a time when segregation was law. Sure. You know, he was uh, treating people, black people, white people, of anybody, anybody any color, any uh, age. Uh, any age, screed, yep, uh, 20, everything. 25 cents a visit, that was all it cost. So he was a very progressive guy, and he was also very, uh, you know, learned. He had been to some uh, big universities. He had, he had done his homework. It was, was the point of last episode. Sure. But, uh, this episode, we're going to tell you a lot more about him that will bring him closer to the anti-comics crusade and maybe bring some of his research into question. But first, we're going to tell you about some early uh, anti-comics crusaders that preceded Frederick Wortham, uh, Going all the way back to 1940, uh, Sterling North, who was a literary critic for the Chicago Daily News, wrote A National Disgrace and a Challenge to American Parents in 1940. So this is, you know, right at comics outset, Superman's a brand new babe in the world.
1: He wouldn't even be in. Uh, he wouldn't even
0: be in kindergarten yet. No, he wouldn't have made it. He would have been in his terrible twos. <laughs> so uh, he said, "Quote: Virtually every child in America is reading these color comic magazines. A poisonous mushroom growth of the last two years. Ten million copies of these sex horror serials are sold every month. One million dollars are taken from the pockets of American children in exchange for graphic insanity." So, uh, you know, taking it pretty seriously Let I me mean, tell you, know uh,
1: And this is so early, I didn't realize that this was uh, 1940, I mean Like we said, Superman's only two And there's already a backlash
0: well, You know, what's interesting about this little This year right here, is it's hmm. probably the, the last year before Comics would become Totally patriotic You know, at least superhero sure. comics So this is almost like a small sliver of time Where you can, you know, there's something that you can Rail against, and then the following year, that's when Captain America, right, punched Hitler on yeah. the cover of Captain America yeah, number one. So after that, no one's going to go against them. Yeah,
1: uh, this was relatively peacetime, uh, you know, compared to uh, relative, what's to
0: come. Relatively, people people yeah. knew something was happening, but I don't think that the national uh, fervor hadn't whipped up yet. And then, obviously, two years later, we'd be in the war, and that would lead to no one was really worried about comics. No, <laughs> during that time. So, so it's funny that this is uh, does seem like a little little piece of time when when people could speak out against comics and then they shut up for a long time. Sure. Uh, he also said uh, one of my favorite quotes, badly drawn, badly written, badly printed, a strain on young eyes and young nervous systems. The effect of these pulp paper nightmares is that of a violent stimulant. That's <laughs> basically equating them to cocaine, I guess, or some kind of at the true, very least, that's pretty crazy. <laughs> uh, within eighteen months of this publication, it was reprinted in over forty newspapers and magazines. So, uh, people were interested. There were some people yeah. that you know wanted to get the word out, obviously.
1: Yeah, some wide circulation there. I mean, uh, the, the you know the cities were a lot different, I suppose, back then. So you know, it didn't really there wasn't didn't really take a whole lot of magazine circulation to get to a wide part of the population.
0: Uh, that that that's partly true. You know, if you if you got in the right Newspapers and magazines obviously you could uh you pretty much would dominate whatever territory they were in. Sure. Um but obviously this, this this shows that for a year and a half there was sufficient interest in this concept of comics being uh evil and wrong for children that they were able to reprint it many times.
1: Sure, sure. Uh, another one of the early uh, the early opponents of comics was a, a fellow by the name of Stanley Kunitz, and he was the editor of the Wilson Library Bulletin. He's a future poet laureate, and he wrote a piece called uh, Libraries to Arms in uh, April 1941. This was an opinion piece in the uh, roving eye section of the Wilson Library Bulletin, uh, and in it he equated comic books to Nazi training manuals. And uh, let me see if I can read this quote without stumble stumble someone too uh (laughs) too bad here he says uh quote perhaps there is a portent here perhaps the violent quintessentially fascistic world of comics is coming at us like a wave and these malodorous creatures in their lurid magician's coats are the advanced scouts of the new order harbingers of their tag or the day thrown like garbage on the beach of our time as a training school for young, impressionable minds, the comics can spawn only a generation of stormtroopers, troo- Galilei, and, uh, and of course, arduous supermen. Uh, now, he says, oh, what are you doing about it, librarians? Come to arms. Yeah. So, and, uh, so
0: you see how the conversation in one year has changed totally to this being a Nazi, you know? This, they're yeah. raising the specter of the Nazis right away, you know? Uh, it's it's totally... Things, things are changing very rapidly here in the U.S. of A.
1: Yeah, and it's it's funny because like we we're gonna go into some some casual speak later on. We're gonna go into some clinical speak later on, but this is almost written. It's like a sonnet.
0: Yeah, I know. <laughs> you know? Yeah,
1: so, it's like so purple. It's like you want to throw up.
0: You almost you almost think this should, really should have been delivered from a balcony somewhere to a you know a throng of people. <laughs> Two
1: arms, librarians. Yes. you know? there's gonna be like a, there's gonna be like roses thrown at this guy's feet. <laughs> <laughs> and. Uh, you know, connections between Superman and uh, Nietzsche's conceptual uh conceptual ubermensch was drawn immediately I mean ubermensch as we'll talk about later you know, it's German for Superman yeah so uh you know uh, it, I think maybe they maybe they took a little bit of a offense to uh the superhero being named in such a way
0: I think I think very much so it just it struck a little too close to home for a lot of people and uh, people didn't see necessarily a guy I think that could hurl a car over his head as being necessarily heroic in any... Sure. But, you know, that's only some people, obviously. A lot of people did like it because it was Superman. Another another great uh, critic of comic books in the early days, although this is much later, so now, you, you know, when you look at what uh, Stanley Kunitz said, that was in 19, April 1941, well, we would enter the war, not... You know, too long after that. That same, you know, uh, later that Couple year, of years, man. or actually, it was it forty-two? Right. So, uh, mm-hmm. yeah, it's it's around the corner. I think that, for a bunch of reasons, put paid to a lot of that criticism. Uh, you know, they were patriotic for one thing, but also there were big kind of bigger fish to fry in the world than to worry about sure. comic books. Uh, but nineteen forty-eight, John Mason Brown, uh, he wrote a column called "Seeing Things" for the Saturday Review of Literature. But in this case, this was during a radio broadcast. He called them the marijuana of the nursery, the bane of the bassinet, the horror of the house, and the curse of the kids, and a threat to the future. You know, this is... People were really taking this very seriously. You know, it, I can't help but think of, you know, video games a great example, and people really against movies, but this really reminds me of the satanic panic of the 1980s, you know?
1: Yeah, the Dungeons and Dragons. And- yeah,
0: and, and all that stuff, heavy metal, and just... Just this sure. like, total fear of something that they obviously don't even know what it is. Uh, no. Because if they knew what it was, they'd realize that it's definitely not the uh, bane of the bassinet. I don't think anyone in the bassinet
1: and look at how reading. counterproductive this is. He he goes on and, he, and he, he weaves this beautiful line, and then Stan Lee steals his way of talking.
0: <laughs> that's right. That was the inspiration right here. He said, oh, I like the way that sounds. Yeah,
1: horror of the house, I dig that.
0: <laughs> and that's how we got Doctor Strange. It is. <laughs> so, uh, But, you know, these guys, he, he did have a little bit of a point because comics after World War II were a lot different than the way comics were during World War II. A lot of sure. things had changed in the world and in what people wanted to see in, in their literature. Uh, you know, The so- soldiers returned from this horrible carnage, You know, uh, just seeing their brothers die in the trenches next to them and uh, having to do unspeakable things, and then not to mention a lot of them waiting now through Auschwitz and seeing what the Nazis had done. Uh, sure. They came back probably a little, feeling a little more serious than when they left. You know, things the, the world uh, had a different hue to it, let's say. And uh, they yeah. want they wanted something more than what they would, had been looking at, which was really just patriotic cheesecake books, you know, with uh, good-looking ladies and muscular men. And, you know, they wanted something a little more sophisticated. Essentially, what they wanted was bloody cheesecake books, <laughs> uh, you know, with lots of guns and later on monsters and well, such things uh, but you know tastes had changed um there was a lot right after world war 2 you know we won the war so we were very wealthy uh, mm-hmm. so wealthy in fact that when you really think about it the korean war kicked off and i want to say 50
1: right just about yeah I think so. 50
0: uh, or 51 yeah that didn't last too long and uh, you know well, we essentially lost that war really or, or came to a stalemate and it didn't sure. it didn't stop the american productivity one bit, you know, we just chugged right along and steamrolled over it be like, ah, we just take that hit, you know, that probably cost, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars and we just ate it, you know, whatever, no big deal, we got more cars coming out of Detroit every day, and uh, there was no more paper rationing, Uh, all the rationing had ended uh, so people could go back to you know, using their glass bottles and, you know, wasting things, and of course printing comics, and there was a comic explosion, you know I mean, there was already a lot of comics on the stands. There were, there were, a hundred or more titles easily every every week coming up on sure. the stands. So many of them when when we taken the you know stuff for the little little kids all the way up to stuff like Crime Does Not Pay, it was endless. But here, it it multiplied by like a factor of five. There were so many small outfits that sometimes to put out a couple issues of this. You know, Jack Kirby and Joe Simon put out a couple issues of that that book. Uh, voyage to the moon you know there there was it seemed like a, a a field that anyone could dip in and out of and squeeze a few comics out maybe make a few bucks and uh, i guess go play it on the ponies <laughs> <laughs> sure
1: sure and you know uh there you know, part of American living was changing in other ways, too. Uh, you know, the suburb was uh, kind of growing at this point. It, it was
0: essentially you know? invented right now. Yeah. Right after yeah, World like, War II. It didn't exist, and now the Levittown on Long Island, uh, where Chris did live for a while, was the first suburb in America.
1: Yeah, it's, uh, you know, there was, it was the, you know, cars were more uh, around. It was uh, easy to get from A to B, or easier, I suppose. Yeah. And, uh, you know, not have to depend on, uh, in, in city transportation or being close to where you need to be at, at all times, yeah. and with all of this having been said, uh, you know cities were get, starting to get looked at as you know cesspools. You know the, these were the old ethnic neighborhoods that were part of the you know don't want to say the old generation, but uh, kinda. But
0: basically yeah. of the old generation, yeah. yeah. <laughs> you know this was not the American dream was not to live on the Lower East Side or in the South Above Side a of Chicago, or, or yeah, they was yeah. to have your own home and your own
1: yard. Yeah, and, uh, you know, the cities here, you know, that's where you're going to find your newsstands, and uh, a lot of the uh, comics were made to appeal to those, uh, to urban p- urban folks, mm. and, uh, you know, the, the country folks, you know, the, I don't know if the Bible Belt was necessarily around at that point or if it was much wider or something, but, uh, you know, the city living was kind of vilified as, uh, you know, part and parcel of this just dirty city life.
0: Which is what you still hear today, you know, right, right now we're going through a uh, kind of crazy political process here in America, uh, you know, with the presidential nominees or presumptive Certainly. nominees talking a lot. And uh, every now and again, they will say stuff like New York values, you know, they, yeah. they they are against New York values or they're against city, you know what I mean, uh, values or whatever. And they essentially are implying this very kind of thing that it's sort of a uh, rough and tumble, dirty
1: yeah, just emboldening that schism. Yeah, <laughs> that, uh, just yeah. it doesn't really need to be there. That, that yeah, that's
0: <laughs> that is very true. But that that's uh, that's a whole other. Show. That's a whole other show that we're not going to
1: do. <laughs> <laughs> that's a whole other kettle of something. Uh, see, many men did not return from the war. You mentioned the, you know, the brothers dying there. You know, your the guy sitting next to you might have, you know, his head blown off. Yeah. And uh, you know, they leave. Uh, they're leaving their wives and families behind. So uh, the status quo that we went into the war with, uh, didn't, didn't return altogether after, uh, after yeah. it was over. Definitely
0: so, uh, you know, for everybody you know, certainly,
1: and it's like women still had to remain in the workforce because nobody was coming home. Yeah. And, uh, also, you know, there was an upsurge in divorce rates following World War II. And, uh, so you have more single parent homes, you have, you know, the greater number of, uh, latchkey kids and, uh, it's just, there's just, they're just around, um, and then we have soldiers who had gotten married before going and then uh, come back changed. They, you know, they have that uh, what we now call PTSD, what we used to call shell shock.
0: Well, sure. You but, they, but also, you know, they, they left and they were 18. Sure. And now they they're, came back and now they're like 23, even sometimes even older, you know, depending on how long they that. stayed enlisted. That's a big change uh, for any of us from 18 to even 22, 23. it's, it's could be like night and day.
1: Absolutely. Uh, and uh, you know, the, and the wives who've had to carry the burden of the home—they mm. they may have found themselves an identity that they didn't know they had, or or the husband might see that they have a new identity that wasn't there when they left. Yeah, I mean, he so, might not
0: appreciate that. <laughs>
1: <laughs> this is true. So and uh,
0: <laughs> the family dynamic had changed, is the point, you
1: know? Yes, yes. Uh, just you know, the whole the whole makeup of uh, the family was changing here with uh, the different places that they're living, the different. The different positions they had within the family—it was uh, the, the, uh, the the family government was changed—and yeah. uh, there was also a big rise in juvenile delinquency. And we had discussed this. I, I don't think we had uh, written it into our uh, outline, but we we were discussing how this was one of the first generations that had time. Yeah. You know, they had time to be delinquents. They uh, like uh, they the, the parents weren't always around. They weren't working. You know, as children. Yeah. And uh, they, they had free time.
0: Exactly, yeah. Child labor laws and this new family dynamic and even public school, all, the, all these things played a role in allowing kids to, like, loiter, essentially. Yeah. Uh, they, you know, this is, this is something we talked about. I didn't even know, didn't know if I wanted to get into it. But the whole Jets and Sharks, the whole urban gang thing, mm-hmm. as far as the modern urban gang, as, as we consider a bunch of kids basically protecting their block – this is when it starts this is this is when that's able to happen because not only are there a ton of kids all growing up around the same age but they're Mm -hmm. all kind of hanging out doing nothing all day you know what i mean (laughs) so so that 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 whole thing uh you know which has grown into a whole you know crime syndicate now uh but 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 this is this is where all that a lot of that started this idea of protect your neighborhood and uh, you know, we know the kids from the block. Blah blah blah. This this is when that was allowed to happen.
1: Yeah, and those suburbanites who looked at the city as as, as you know these ethnic uh, deals, uh, they weren't too far off. No, you know there there were the you know you had the Italian neighborhood, you had the Puerto Rican neighborhood, you had the Irish neighborhood. It's you know, so there was. There was a figurative turf to protect
0: and, and there was going to be a huge uh, immigration of Latin people throughout the 50s uh, sure Puerto Rico but then even you know throughout South and Central America uh, so that would definitely contribute to a lot of these people fleeing the cities and taking to the suburbs and being nowhere near the newsstands that they had to you know that they would have done picked up comics as an impulse by they start to see that kind of thing as foreign and scary, you know, all, <laughs> Absolutely. all part of that world.
1: Yeah, and this was also around the time of the, the baby boom. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, these are, I think this, we were saying this was like the first generation that actually bought comics and, and kind of collected them. These yeah. were the, the, quote unquote, I, I hate the word fanboy, but this was the, these were the first fanboys.
0: Th- these really were the very first people to start cataloging and paying attention and uh, looking for a continuity where it didn't really exist uh, no. At the time, but you know, <laughs> still uh, giving, gotta give him credit for making an effort. Um, and you know, it wasn't all superheroes though. This, this was a generation that loved their Donald Duck and their fucking Uncle Scrooge. You know, those Disney comics outsold all these other comics throughout the sure. entire 40s and 50s by a, by a wide margin. Uh, and it wasn't just little kids. I mean, a lot of people up into their teens liked them as. Uh, my father likes to remind me constantly, but that's <laughs> that's for the therapist catch, folks. Uh, this is something Chris and I kind of talked about a little bit, um, and and if anyone wants to write in and give us their thoughts on this, we'd really or tweet at us. We'd really appreciate it. We'll give us the the contact info at the end of the show. But right around now, superheroes really did wane in popularity. Um, they were so huge during most of the 40s. And then they just disappeared you know one by one green lantern got replaced by his pet dog uh you know Cap- <laughs> um captain marvel kind of dripped away no one i guess captain america really didn't have a place anymore now that he had in a sense won his fight
1: his war yeah
0: so you know our idea is kind of a it's a kind of a recap of what we just talked about you know the older fan base wanted something more mature uh you know after seeing world war II, these flying men in tights seemed a little silly you know it's just, hmm. that's not how the world works people you know the real evil people in this world are a lot scarier than uh the joker and the penguin um and also fads come and go although and, and you know that's true of comics today comics uh wane and wax in popularity sure. you know right now they seem to be in a boom time but there are lean times so always behind it You know, a a lot of times I think about it. Superheroes exist in modern day due to the iron will of a select small group of people that just won't, you know, uh, won't let them go. They they won't (laughs) let them go, you know, because because the logic dictates. You know, there's probably more lucrative ways to uh, make your uh, your dollars there, but people really love this stuff, and you know, it's also a a dedicated fan base, ourselves included, that keep it Mm -hmm. keep it alive. But if anyone has any Um, Insights into that or their own thoughts? We'd really love to hear them because I think it's just a topic that can just be ruminated on. There's no real answer. It's just sort of happened. Superheroes drifted away, although not all of them. Some of them were published throughout the entire time that we're talking about, and that would have been uh, Superman, Batman, Wonder Woman, Aquaman had backups throughout the entire 50s. Green Arrow had backups throughout the 50s. Uh, A handful of others. Martian Manhunter came in in 56, I guess, or...
1: Yeah, uh, right before, right before showcase, for you know, about a year before,
0: yeah. So, so, so there, there was, there was something to it, but mainly, you know, DC Comics, which was national periodicals back then, and Marvel, which was timely, uh, called Timely back then. Uh, they, they switched mainly to sci-fi and western um, stories. Uh, they're well known for stuff like the Rawhide Kid or uh,
1: yeah, Batlash,
0: Batlash. And- so, the, 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 these, these, these were. Huge at the time, because Westerns were huge for some unknown reason, while the other (laughs) publishers, uh, Harvey, Charlton, guys like that, even smaller outfits, uh, ACG and weirdos like that, they, they went into crime and horror. And yep. uh, we're going to tell you about a couple of those
1: publishers right now. Yeah, we're going to talk about crime does not pay, which was uh, published by Liv Gleason Productions. A little bit about Liv is he was born Leverett Stone Gleason, born February twenty-fifth. Um, I was going to say eighteen. He's uh, I was going to say nineteen. He's eighteen ninety. Oh yeah, I'm <laughs> In uh, Winchendon, Massachusetts. He uh, dropped out of Harvard in 1917 to join the U.S. Army for World War One. He remained in Paris until 1919, studying letters at the Sorbonne under the GI uh, program. I don't know if that's necessarily GI Bill yet, but uh, I don't think I would it imagine was. similar.
0: I don't. I I think it was probably a a much smaller Precursor. arrangement yeah. to that. Yeah, I, you know, it was probably uh, done with an outfit or or some kind of a more informal arrangement with the Sorbonne because they were there. Uh, I, I think what's interesting, though, and you know, not that he's the only guy that do it, but most, a lot of people stay in college to stay out of the war. Yeah, right. You know, uh, and here this guy, he dropped out. He, he have Harvard of all freaking places to uh, to go to go fight, and he never did graduate college. By the way, I don't think I wrote that here.
1: Okay, now you see, he returned uh, to the United States and Boston in 1919. He married. He had a son. Divorced. Married again. Divorced, and uh, moved to uh, New York City in 1929 as a uh, single, and, single fellow.
0: Single and ready to
1: mingle. Uh, just in time for uh, a really good time in, the, in <laughs> the United States history here. You know that uh, that that little stock market crash that happened there.
0: Yeah, I mean, I, I didn't, you know, I I couldn't find a date, but Eddie, you know. Let's say he showed up in May of that year, so he had like it's still going to suck. Five good months, and then everything got real <laughs> shitty. <laughs>
1: but but what a five months?: I know,
0: always living high on the hog.
1: <laughs> he uh, joined Eastern Color Printing Company's Salesforce. This was uh, Max Gaines' company, and we'll get to him shortly. Yeah. Uh, he began his own uh, outfit, Lev Gleason Publications, in 1939 with partners author Bernhard and Morris Latson. And you know, this is just the year after Superman, uh, the year of Batman. So yep. there uh, was probably some interest. Oh yeah. Um, he put out Silver Streak and Daredevil comics initially. This this isn't Matt Murdock. No. This is that uh, kinda. He's kind of in that weird Peter Cannon Thunderbolt, <laughs> you know. Yeah, that uh, like bisectic. red on one side, blue on the yeah.
0: <laughs> and spiked <laughs> wrists, and he has a spiked belt. He's like, and he throws boomerangs. He's very, he's very weird. You should, people should check him out if they want to see some uh, weird Golden Age fun.
1: Yeah, because they brought him back. Uh, I think Dynamite brought him back as yeah. part of an Alex Ross project in the late 2000s. Which, and you know,
0: a little, little misguided there, you know. I mean,
2: <laughs> I mean, listen, you know,
0: Daredevil, this Daredevil is some good, kitschy fun, but he can stay where he is and still be good, kitschy fun, you know what I Absolutely. mean? Like, and as a matter of fact, if anyone's interested, uh, I know for a fact Daredevil battles Hitler, which was the first... Daredevil issue he started in in the Silver Streak which was an anthology and then he was a breakout star he had his own book for a little while the first one is available online if you search it on Google it's public domain so it's not hard to get uh, if you're interested in reading that
1: Very nice. Uh, See, our our man, uh, Lev, here got married for the final time in 1941 to a woman named Margaret Cawley. uh, And he was called before the House Un-American Activities Commission in 1946, where he was fined $500 for supporting anti-fascist Spaniards in the Spanish Civil War. And uh, because of this, and we had found, uh, we had actually found his FBI file, yeah. and uh, checked that out. And he was uh, suspected of being a member of the Communist Party because of this. And that was not something you wanted to be accused of back then.
0: No, uh, you know, th- this is still early on, but uh, you know, things are obviously going to get a lot, a lot more heated up in the Cold
1: War. Ooh. Certainly, certainly. <laughs> <laughs> and after comics, he was involved in social causes, and he pushed many anti-establishment screeds and manifestos. Uh, it shouldn't be any surprise he was opposed to the Vietnam War. Mm-hmm. And uh, he died shortly after, uh, September twenty-fourth, 1971, and very strange, he would not allow a funeral.
0: Yeah, I'm, I'm not sure what they did exactly. I mean, I assume they didn't just let him rot away, but... He's probably uh, sitting
1: in a chair somewhere.
0: Maybe, maybe they just maybe they just mummified him or something. I, I assume what they do is they just uh, drop you in the grave with no ceremony and that's the end of it. But yeah, just um, a
1: marker without a name on it or something. You no, know,
0: I mean this guy Lev Gleason, he, he could have a podcast of his own. He really was a fascinating person. And, sure. You know, the, but the the point I'm trying to get across here is he really was a progressive. Uh, socially minded, you know, liberal kind of guy to the point of actually supporting anti fascists and whatever. Um, so you know, this this is not the kind of guy that you would think would produce a uh comic like this that we're about to talk about. You know, it kind of reminds me, you ever see the guy that produces the uh that show Cops on Fox? No, you ever see him? He's like, I don't know his name, but that guy, too, he's like a dyed in the wool liberal, he's always that Democratic. Uh, causes, oh, wow. yeah. He's he's, uh, he's a huge Democrat. Supports whatever, blah blah. And he, he fucking produces cops. And he said he, he sees it as a public service, which is how Lev Gleason saw crime does not pay. Um, the book was edited main and mainly written by Charles Byrow, who uh, let you know on every issue by signing uh, his signature uh, hugely across the front Biro. cover. yeah, Byro. And actually, it got bigger and bigger as the as the magazine went on. Uh, he was born May 12, 1911. He died uh, March 4, 1972, a year after Lev Gleason, but much younger. Uh, studied at the Brooklyn Museum School of Art and the Grand Central School of Art, which were. Uh, relatively public uh, art schools at the time that were pretty well respected, though, uh, worked his way up through the Harry A. Chesler shop in the earliest days of comic books. someday we will do the we will talk about the shop era of the Golden yeah. Age comics. But uh, for now, let's just say old Harry A. Chesler shop also employed Otto Binder and Jack Cole among many other guys. Uh, mm-hmm. Kind of cruised through there a lot of guys that we'd come to know later. Uh, Another guy that contributed to Crime Does Not Pay to a smaller amount, but he was the co-creator, was Bob Wood, uh, who's very most famous. In 1958, he was arrested for beating a woman to death in a room at the Irving Hotel in New York City. Uh, He actually did it and hopped in a cab and confessed to the cabbie. He must have been kind of in a mental state or something. Sure. Uh, Confessed to the cabbie, and the cabbie told the cop. And, uh, yeah, he pled guilty to first-degree manslaughter... And got three years in Sing Sing Prison in Ossining, New York. And uh, he was murdered a year after his release in 1962 over unpaid debts to prison creditors. So this was, uh, you know, kind of a tough guy. Let me tell you, this guy was, you know, little yeah. tough as nails.
1: Sure, he 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 was he was he was in there. Yeah, so he just uh, didn't pay for his cigarettes, unfortunately. No,
2: that that was
0: the problem. <laughs> uh, Byro took a job at Lev Gleason Publications in 1941. I don't know uh, when Bob Wood started or how that happened. Uh, the two of them were editing Silver Streak and Daredevil, and then Gleason offered them a profit sharing and a cover credit for uh, Crime Does Not Pay, which they had come up with, which was very unusual at the time in any creative industry. It's even unusual now. But now, you know, you will see deals like that. But back then, there were, you know, what I mean, this this is the Siegel and Schuster sold the rights to Superman for two hundred yeah. bucks era. So, uh, this I think it's interesting that he did that. It also definitely invested them into the comic. Sure. Um, and he urged them to come up with new titles. They came up with Crime Does Not Pay, and it ran from July 1942 to July 1955, thirteen years. Yeah. It's a long time for any magazine, even. You know what I mean? Like, sure. it's, it's kind of crazy that this comic ran. Uh, it was uh, took over the numbering of Silver Streak with number twenty-two, <laughs> uh, and then ran from there.
1: Yeah, and this was the first quote unquote true crime comic book. Yeah. And uh, each issue contained several cautionary tales about gangsters and hoodlums that they would meet their bitter end. Um, often these stories would detail criminals that lived, you know, they were real, lived relatively high on the hog for many years. They were uh, successful in their endeavors uh, before dying majestically in a hail of bullets. Yeah, this is um,
0: something I've been reading. If anyone's interested, Dark Horse has been reprinting them. Um, I think they're up to uh, volume 11 now, which only takes <laughs> us into like the mid 40s. But uh, these are incredibly dense, sometimes crudely drawn, sometimes not horribly drawn, but heavily written. Uh, comics and often, yeah, these guys they do very well. They live for like thirty years on <laughs> fucking millions of dollars, and you know they rob banks, they don't get caught, everything is great. They have beautiful women, they go around the world, and then they die. They get shot when they're like fifty-five, and it's like, ah, hey, you know, it's that's pretty good. They lived a good life, you know.
1: <laughs> sure, yeah. yeah. Com- <laughs> the uh, the life expectancy wasn't that much longer than exactly, back then. You know, yeah.
0: Exactly. <laughs> you, get, you get thirty good
1: years, you know. That's, sure. That's, that's, that's more worth- than most people get. Exactly. <laughs> now, at one time, uh, this uh, this title claimed a readership of 6 million. Yeah. That's,
0: that's insane. Now, that's pro- that's probably inflated because oh, um, I think they were counting the people that trade. Trade, yeah. Back and forth, which was a huge thing, people that lent, lent each other comics and magazines. But, uh, to be honest, with that in mind, it probably wasn't far yeah. off from that figure in reality. A lot of Sure. People, this was a hugely popular comic. Whenever you look at pictures of newsstands of the era this one is right in your face because the crime,
1: the yep, word it, crime it, it,
0: is huge on
1: huge. it. It's yeah. huge. It's almost as big as Byro's name. His <laughs> uh, <laughs> you know, uh, time wore on and competition thickened because you know a lot, you know, a lot of publishers saw how successful this was. Mm-hmm. They started putting out uh, you know, imitators. So uh, Crime Does Not Pay had to get, they had to push the envelope a bit. They got bloodier, they got gory to the uh, point of Ridiculousness.
0: Yeah, they were just gushing blood all the time out of every orifice. It's, it's great.
1: <laughs> yeah, they, they, they drilled new orifices in the people just so blood could come out.
0: <laughs> Definitely.
1: <laughs> and uh, yeah, there were imitators. We had, uh, let's see here, we had Headline Comics and Real Clue, that was uh, by Joe Simon Jack Kirby. Right. And uh, Official True Crime Cases was published by Timely, uh, Marvel back in the day. Mm-hmm. Gangbusters by uh, DC, then National. This one's great, Crimes by Women. <laughs> yep. I was I was looking at all the covers of that book uh, a few days ago. That thing is that is wonderful. Just
0: a lot of angry Hellcats, huh? you know. Yeah, just, pretty yeah. much. <laughs> just uh, uh, brandishing whips and stuff or guns. <laughs> yeah, I think You're I've seen the it. type.
1: Yeah, yeah. <laughs> We also had uh, Crime and Punishment, which was another one by uh, Gleason Productions, yeah. and uh, probably just a way to you know pack the stands, push off some of the imitators. Yeah. Just to, and just you know to, they were.
0: Double double his output right there.
1: Why not, right? And uh, the market, the, you know, the market's there, and uh, you know there were several others as well.
0: Yeah, we're going to get to some of those later when we do talk more about Frederick Wortham and sure. his book, but uh, that should suffice for now. So that was the crime side of things. So, uh, one of the one of the bigger, or maybe the biggest crime, uh, true crime comic publisher. But then on the horror side of things, we have EC Comics. Uh, a lot of people know about this. This was started by Maxwell Charles Max Gaines. around. Eight. He was born around 1891. Some accounts say 1895. I guess you know record-keeping was not a huge thing back then. <laughs> uh, he died August 20, 1947. He actually created the first four-color comic book in 1933. And I didn't put it here, but he actually also put out the first uh, comic book with original stuff in it. Because the first ones were just reprints of Sunday strips.
1: Uh, Yeah, strips, yeah.
0: And then he ran out of those. And I think it was 1936, I'm going to say, maybe 35. I, I just don't have it in front of me. He put out the first one with original material. Um... He was the first to get newsstand distribution of comic books. Originally, they were just something given away to Woolworth stores, and he was so they were more lucrative than that. Yeah, and uh, he started eventually started All American Comics with Jack Leibowitz in 1938. Uh, Jack co-owned National Allied Publications, which was DC uh, Comics. That was their name back then with Harry Donenfeld, and there were a lot of characters in All American that would seem familiar to a lot of you uh, today because. what happened? Eventually, he he felt guilty about contributing to juvenile delinquency. Uh, right around the mid '40s, so he sells All American to Jack and starts educational comics. Uh, mm-hmm. So those characters, I, you know, Wonder Woman leaps to mind, but I think Green sure. Lantern was was one of them. Uh, the original Alan Scott Green Lantern, and uh, if I really maybe Hawkman, if I really delve into it, a lot of, a lot of guys in the DC stable now, yeah, they, they originate from this All American comics. Uh, he he continues all Americans picture stories from the Bible Bibles in his educational comics imprint, uh, as well as other historical and literary picture stories. And I actually went to the comic shop on Wednesday, and you know they're reprinting these Classics Illustrated. Really? Yeah, you can go buy reprints. Like, why would you want it? Like these, these are the most boring comics. They're terrible. They are just <laughs> sometimes sometimes they can be. That I'd say they're drawn on a scale from unbearable to, you know, all right, I, I, I see what's going on, you know, at least. But, you know, just like the boring retelling of a... Uh, of a
1: Robinson Caruso. Robinson yeah. Caruso. It,
0: it's, it, they really don't work. Um, then Max Gaines died in a boating accident, as I said, on August 20th, 1947. He was boating on Lake Placid with his son, Bill Gaines, Bill's friend, Sam Irwin, and Sam Irwin's eight-year-old son. And uh, tragically, Max and Sam died. And that left EC to his son Bill Gaines.
1: Yeah Bill uh, born William Maxwell Gaines. he was born March 1st 1922. He lived uh, he actually lived into my lifetime here June yeah. 3rd 1992. Uh, he was in a senior year of N- at NYU getting his teaching certificate when his father passed away and uh, really didn't cotton to the uh, comics industry at first. No. He uh, didn't dig it all that much. When he did, you know, take it over, he changed he changed the EC from educational comics to entertaining comics, and started really tapping into the zeitgeist of the time and put out horror, sci-fi, and, and war books. Mm-hmm. And uh, these were uh, some of the best written, best drawn. They had talent like Harvey Kurtzman, Jack Davis, Wally Wood, Frank Frazetta, Joe Orlando. Um, some of the titles that they published were Vault of Horror. Shock suspense stories. <laughs> that's a great name. Yeah.
0: Like they made up a new word there, you know. Yeah, suspense stories. And and,
1: <laughs> su- <suspense-stories. laughs> and, uh, and even
0: weird science. That's right. That's where that's where weird science comes from, folks. It's not mm-hmm. from the movie. No, the not the movie of course got not. its name from the comic. <laughs> and then we got our name from the movie that got its name from the comic. So, it's all very derivative.
1: It's 3 degrees of separation. <laughs> yeah, it works. <laughs> And uh, yeah, like we we're saying, these were some of the best on the stands. They were more satirical, they were more literate, uh, they were just better—you know—better production value insofar as storytelling than many of their contemporaries.
0: For sure, uh, you know, *Twilight Zone* was definitely uh, these comics on television. That's all it was. Sure. it was. And Rod Serling made no bones about it, having been inspired by that. Obviously, movies like *Creepshow* and uh, *That Tales from the Crypt* on HBO, as well as. So many other, uh, you know, outer limits and stuff like that. This, this, it's all takes from these uh, very well written and very satirical, often with a, with a surprise ending that actually is surprising and uh, shocking. Uh, Dark Horse also reprints, is reprinting all of these in uh, pretty high quality, glossy paper. Hmm. Um, they're expensive, unfortunately. But yeah. worth a look if you, if you can stand in your comic shop For a while Or you can take them out of <laughs> the library uh, These really are the best of the batch But this is by far Not the only in the batch There were a lot of horror comics On the stands around this time Absolutely. And I would love right now To just list just some of them uh, Weird adventures Weird horrors Weird chills Weird mysteries Weird tales of the future Weird terror Weird thrillers Fawcett Publications, This Magazine is Haunted. I love, that's one of my that's favorite awesome. ever. Uh, <laughs> ghostly Weird Stories, Web of Evil, Web of Mystery, Horror from the Tomb, Harvey Comics, Tomb of Terror, and witches' Tales. Uh, this is the company that later would be best known for making Richie, Rich, and Casper the Friendly Ghost comics. <laughs> but actually, these are probably the, se- uh, they're a distant second to EC's comics. I'll, I'll tell you now. Uh, these are also being reprinted uh, by some British publisher. I think they're called PS Art Books. Uh, you can usually get them pretty cheap in uh, secondhand if you want to, if you're interested. But um, maybe I'll have you know, other recommendations for comics later on. Uh, Witchcraft was another title. Charlton Comics, The Thing, which was eventually edited and almost solely written and drawn by a very young Steve Ditko. Atlas Comics, Adventures into Weird Worlds, Adventures into Terror, Menace, Journey into Mystery, Strange Tales, and a dozen more titles. And that's just a few of them, ladies and gentlemen. I mean, there were so many of them that came and went. Some of them had one issue, some of them had three issues, some of them had one issue, or or a couple issues, and then changed the name and took over the numbering of the previous one.
1: Uh, Journey into Mystery and Strange Tales, those became... Those became the homes for uh, what, Iron uh, Man Thor and Thor, and, and, and,
0: yeah. and Iron Man, exactly. Is it Iron Man? Yeah. Yeah. yeah, you're right. Uh, and uh, oh no, Strange Tales was Doctor Strange. Oh no, you're right. You're right. It was it was Iron Man, but then Doctor Strange. And then Tales.
1: Captain America was half of it for a little while That's too. I That's right.
0: Uh, they, they they used them they used them to their best effect. One day we will talk about Marvel and explain why they did that, but yes. they won't be today. And in <laughs> fact, we are going to take a little break, ladies and gentlemen, and. Uh, We're going to, you know, be gone for a couple of minutes. It might just be a couple of seconds for you. But when we come back, we're going to tell you.
2: I have your name, please? Uh, Estes Kefalver. And your age? Paul, I really might be inclined to plead the immunity of the Fifth Amendment on my age, but I guess it's all right. I'm 51 now. (laughs) And your occupation, sir? I'm a uh, politician, a member of the United States Senate. Senator Kefauver, what have you learned so far in your investigation on the subject of comic books? Paul, we had an extensive hearing in New York some months back, and we've had other hearings in other parts of the country. I was amazed to find the number of comic books being published each month in the United States. We found about 100 million. Of these 100 million going out, uh, approximately 80 million are all right. They're funny, entertaining, some of them are educational. But about 20 million were of the horror and and crime type in which we are particularly interested. And this comic book uh, business is really big business.
1: And welcome back. Um, like we said before we left, we're gonna open this one up with a, a little bit more Wortham. Yeah. Um, let's see here. Yeah, he was uh, intrad- he was interviewed or or quoted at least in a uh, in a piece by a Judith Crist called "Horror in the Nursery" in an issue of Collier's Magazine dated March 27th, 1948. And he is quoted as saying, "The comic books, in intent and effect, are demoralizing." The morals of American youth—they are sexually aggressive in an abnormal way. They make violence alluring and cruelty heroic. They are not educational, but stultifying.
0: Maybe not the best. Maybe not the best uh, sentence there. Demoralizing the morals, but you know you understand what his yeah, gist is.
1: He's—he's he's an English language man. <laughs> yeah,
0: he is. An, he is. A, <laughs> English is not his first language, ladies
1: and gentlemen see here another quote if those responsible refuse to clean up the comic book market and to all appearances most of them do the time has come to legislate these books off the newsstands and out of the candy stores and this is 1948
0: yeah so this is laying the groundwork for government intervention into comic books uh, absolutely which is interesting you know and you know this is this is a tried and true tactic of all uh, crusaders of any kind it always it always comes down to well the government's got to step in and do something about it, uh, but this was early early on uh, before the uh, Senate hearings would happen years later.
1: Yeah, All, almost a decade before. It's yep. pretty, uh, pretty crazy. Um, another quote here, uh, we do not maintain that comic books automatically cause delinquency in every child reader, yep. but we found that comic book reading was a distinct influencing factor in the case of every single delinquent or disturbed child we studied. And he included some Case studies from his clinic, but it you know the comics were just such a ubiquitous presence. It's like saying that it's 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 crazy how it's like it was everywhere. But yeah. he, and he's trying to draw a correlation to it, and he, and he's 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 you know give him credit for not saying that you know outright this is what it is, but he's kind of saying it is.
0: Yeah, well, you know, I that, I think that quote's important because uh, a lot of people they get the impression that he said that you know, comics cause delinquency. Sure. Uh, that is, he never said that. What he, You know, no. he said that it, it could trigger things within people, uh, even beyond delinquency, as we're going to talk about later on, when we talk about his book. Sure. But, you know, um, he did have a very clinical approach to it. Uh, you know, he saw it as a public health problem, though, and that was, that was why he felt like it was something we as a society had to, address and take um, care yeah. but, but but I agree with you that the correlation of comic books to delinquents well it could have also done a correlation of comic books to good kids probably I mean yeah, we're, or like almost Russell, every Russell kid,
1: Sprouts to delinquents uh,
0: you know? or something like that yeah I mean almost, the comics were so so ubiquitous almost every kid was reading comics if not every kid I mean even if you weren't buying comics as we said sure. in the other in the first half you were trading them you were doing that uh, these case studies, too, and this this sort of become a hallmark for Wortham through his life. Uh, you know, it, it, his book is is annotated, I believe, but you know, he has a very off the cuff, casual way. You know, I, I yeah. have a, I have a girl age thirteen who likes to put knitting needles in her nose or whatever. You know, and a, a boy. You know, it, it's always it's always very anecdotal tales, and it, it's 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 very nice for the layperson, but sure, uh, I wouldn't call it exactly a scientific, journalistic type of. Uh, Discussion uh, In yeah, that same year, he delivered a... Oh, sorry.
1: Oh, I was just going to say, one of the things that we discussed uh, is that maybe he used that more casual language to avoid being noticed by, you know, the the, the psychological outfit of the time, it's, you know, where... It's possible. It, where it's like, oh, well, this isn't real studies, you know. It, like, his, his approach is very clinical, but his, his dialogue, his communication, it's not.
0: Yeah. And, uh, well, you'll see so later when he, he does write for a... Uh, he, he does get something published in a journal suddenly the tone is a lot less conversational uh, yeah, I think, it's, I think it's, that's what this is here, right? With, it's very yeah. sterile um, This is a, uh, the same year he, he delivered a symposium called The Psychopathology of Comic Books, and this would actually get published uh, in the American Journal of Psychotherapy, and listen to how different his tone becomes now uh, The comic books concentrate on aggressions which are impossible under civilized restraints, with fists, guns torture, killing, and blood The internalized censorship of both artist and child make this attack respectable by directing it against some scapegoat criminal or wild animal, or even against some natural law like gravity, rather than against the parents, teachers, and policemen who are the real sources of the child's frustration, and therefore the real objects of his aggression. At the same unconscious level, the child identifies himself with the heroic avenger. He may also identify whoever has been frustrating him with the corpse. Interesting stuff.
1: Yeah, it's kind of it tantamount to putting, you know, the picture of your worst enemy on the dartboard. <laughs> it's yeah. It's just displaced aggression.
0: Hey, you know, but you see that today definitely in comic books. Some people, you know, a lot of, everyone has their favorite superhero, but a mm-hmm. lot of people, they like villains, you know, and then you see characters, uh, modern characters like Harley Quinn and the Punisher, they sort of feed into that, sort of the anti-hero. Uh, sure. So, you know, it's, it's an interesting thing he's saying that just because, uh, you know, Superman is the... Main character doesn't mean everyone's rooting for Superman also, you know. Sure. it's It's uh, kind of an interesting way to look at it. Uh, he went on to say that the price being only a few cents piece, and the distribution national, every city child can and does read from ten to a dozen of these pamphlets monthly, an unknown number of times, and then trades them off for others. If there is only one violent picture per page, and there are usually more... Every city child who was six years old in 1938 has now absorbed an absolute minimum of 18,000 pictorial beatings, shootings, stranglings, blood puddles, and torturings to death from comic books alone. The fortification of this visual violence with similar oral violence over the radio daily, and both together in the movies on Saturday, must also be counted in. The effect, and there are those who think that it has been a conscious intention has been to raise up an entire generation of adolescents who have felt thousands upon thousands of times all of the sensations and emotions of committing murder, except pulling the trigger. And toy guns advertised in the back pages of the comics have supplied that. So uh, what he's saying basically is that he thinks that comics, along with movies and radio, are raising a generation of uh, military, of warmongers, people Mm -hmm. ready to fight in the war that are, you know, very aggressive, uh, maybe he you know, I don't know. And a,
1: and a lot of times those toy guns weren't actually toy guns <laughs> advertised in the back of the book. It's
0: true. Uh, well, I mean, you could get Daisy air rifles back then, which mm-hmm. can do some damage, but I think, you know, a, a lot of toys back then, uh, the, the bang sounds and a lot of toys and, and novelties were actual twenty two caliber bullets. Uh, mm-hmm. This was just a a, a common you, you know gunpowder was kind of thrown around a lot more liberally back in the day. I don't know what it <laughs> <laughs> just kind of throw it wherever you want, have a good time with it. Uh, you know, I, I don't know. This this is very similar. Also, you know, people said the same same thing about TV in our generation mm-hmm. and before that that we had been subjected to uh, so much violence just by yeah we've a been age.
1: desensitized
0: yeah uh, I you think know it's a lot of it. I, you know, I, I say that that's definitely an argument still worth having. It's not necessarily, don't, I don't know if I would go all the way to say that that's true, but I think that there may be something to it. Uh, you oh, know. certainly. So, just just something to think about, folks, that maybe Wortham was uh, on the trail of something here.
1: Yeah, it's, uh, even, even if he's sniffing the wrong way, there's, there's something on the horizon.
0: Something, yeah.
1: In uh, in May of 1948, he wrote an article for the Saturday Review of Literature. This is
0: all the same year. This is a very busy year same... for yes. right here.
1: <laughs> he's quite the prolific uh, hellmonger. His though. writing his
0: writing hand was very sore by the end of the year. He's like, oh, I gotta <laughs> I gotta get a typewriter.
1: Yeah, one of the he's gonna get a dictaphone. Uh, let's see here, <laughs> <laughs> the uh, article was entitled "The Comics dot 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 very funny." Yeah,
0: but well, this is and... my favorite
1: one. Yeah, it's, it's his, these are a lot of his anecdotal stories here. Uh, he says here, I examine a boy of 14 referred to the clinic for stealing. I ask him, do you think your stealing had anything to do with comic books? And he answers, oh no, in the comics it's mostly murder. <laughs> it's, arguments <laughs> like yeah, uh, it's arguments like this. That's It's arguments like, the this is like the arguments used by experts under the subsidy from the comic book industry.
0: Yeah, and, and this is something Wortham worth believed was that, uh, com, you know, Actually, it was true. Comic books were hiring psychologists to endorse their comics and say that they were good for children. Oh, yeah. Uh, You know, using spurious research uh, or (laughs) no no research at all, possibly, just saying it just for the dollars. So uh, he he was talking about something very real going on in comics at the time.
1: And we don't know what the checks and balances were at this point either. So I mean, I could I could put my, on my blog post tomorrow, endorsed by you know Dr. Frazier Crane. Exactly. Who's going to say no. Yeah.
0: Well, uh, I I, th- I think the checks were signed by the publisher and the balances were you know <laughs> skewed <laughs> in their favor. That's all it was.
1: I think yes. Uh, another one of his stories here, uh, or another one of his uh, quotes. Think of yeah, the many reasons.
0: Hold on, qu- You might want to take a deep breath now, Chris. This is a. This is question. a long
1: one, and, and, I, and I and my. Uh, My uh, uh, fatigue-laden discalcula. (laughs) Let's see here. Think of many crimes committed by young boys and girls. A 12-year-old boy who kills his younger sister. A 12-year-old boy who kills his older sister. A 13-year-old burglar who operates with a shotgun. A 17-year-old boy who kills a 13-year-old boy and leaves a note signed, The Devil. <laughs> he, he got that from, uh, what's his face? Jack the Ripper. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> See, uh, a public school in New York City where two police officers circulate on the grounds and in corridors to prevent violence. That'd be a, that'd be a, like a small, small crew now. I know,
0: really. That, that's nothing <laughs> like, oh, really? Just a couple of cops? Like, every, like a decade <laughs> yeah, police force to some schools out there, let me tell you.
1: Drug sniffing dogs. <laughs> uh, a mathematics teacher who needs to give examinations with policemen present in the classroom. <laughs> a 13-year-old who shot a nurse. Shot a nurse? Well, wow. Why? it <laughs> was sent to reform... He didn't want a shot. Uh, was, he didn't want uh, the tongue depressor. That's right. Uh, <laughs> he was sent to a reformery where, incidentally, he'd read more comic books. A gang of adolescent bandits led by a 15-year-old girl, two 12-year-old boys, one and one... And one of 11 stopping a man on the street and shooting him with a semi auto What the? Okay. <laughs> a 15-year-old boy, 3rd degree as a suspect in a murder case. Three 16-year-old boys killing a 14-year-old for revenge. A New York City school where the pupils, thre- the older pupils threaten the younger ones with violence and with maiming, robbing them of their money, watches, and fountain pens.
0: I mean, that, that last one, thats that's <laughs> just school. That's yeah. That, that's, you know what
1: I mean? Yeah, <laughs> you you can you can drop yourself in any year.
0: <laughs> you know the older kids, yeah, threatening the younger ones. <laughs> I, you know, I I love this whole thing just because it's a total just list of shit.
1: Oh, it's awesome, you know? I mean, That's he, he that's might, a lot of what his book is too. It,
0: it is, yeah. It's, it's just him, just you know, a listing 12, a twelve year old <laughs> boy, you know, firing a gun at a cat, you know, and you know, a guy that stuck his dick in a the mashed potatoes. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, it's it, he just goes on and on, and you know. It's not exactly. I'm not. You know, I did not. I have not looked personally at Wortham's research or Hmm. know what he's talking about. But I looked up a lot of these. uh, Did did as many cross references for news. I figured some of these would be pretty big news items. Uh, Most all of them would have happened uh, in and around New York City. So I looked at the newspapers of the time. I could not find any evidence. To support even the even even the the kid that shot a nurse I looked shot up shot a nurse yeah the, uh, the the girl that that running a gang of boys I looked up the 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 the, the, the kids. Uh, stopping a man in the street and shooting him with a semi-automatic like that ridiculous i feel like that would have been that would have been a news item in the, in the, that it's something
1: it, yeah <laughs> it would it would if not the front page it would have been up there somewhere <laughs>
0: somewhere but I, yeah, I i couldn't find any of it so take ama- take, take that what you will
1: <laughs> it's amazing cuz this this here if he would have if this this article wouldn't pass a psych 101 class yeah it's just like, okay, where's your sources? Yeah, well, no, just trust me. It doesn't work that way. And
0: granted, it is just an article, but yeah, I mean, you know, you gotta, you can't just make these incredible claims without something to back them up. I mean, it's just fear mongering, you know. Now he's just stirring up the pot, getting parents like, oh, I don't want my boy to shoot a semi automatic, you know.
1: And you got to uh, think of all the goodwill he's had from his from his research, from his just his credibility, and just a. Uh, to just speak in such absolutes here. It's just uh, it's, it's crazy to wrap your head around that. It's just I don't think he realized that there would be anybody who would, who would ask for a citation. Yeah. So it's just uh, very strange. Um, let's see here. He also refutes a list of 12 points in support of comic books. Uh, they're called uh, you know, uh, they're referred to as a good outlet or educational comics lead children to read the classics and uh, they improve their reading skills. And as we're going to go into far deeper later on, um, he says nah, that nope. <laughs> don't work. Don't think
0: so, buddy, nope, I don't believe it. yeah, he he, he didn't he he refuted every one of these points and I didn't want to list them. You can pretty much imagine what they might be. but uh, yeah, worth them.
1: Well, we're going to get to that deeper end.
0: Was not having it. You know, I mean, but to talk about the the accessibility of what he'd written, excerpts of this would be reprinted in in Reader's Digest just a few months later that year. That's got a
1: huge circulation, yeah. It's
0: a huge circulation, but it's also obviously written for the layperson. This was not heady academic stuff he was writing. This was all for people to soak up and, you know, talk about how crazy things are in the American cities and whatever. Uh, but it would all lead up to his monumental, his, his magnum opus, his main work, Seduction of the Innocent, which was published in 1954 by Reinhardt and Company. Maybe ironically, it also published the earliest Peanuts comic strip collections, so the first one being in 1952. Uh, now, nah, I don't think Peanuts was on his uh, roster, but anyway, just, some, <laughs> just something to think about. Uh, the Wortham list of bad effects of crime comics. That's uh, copyright, Wortham, <laughs> Frederick Wortham, 1954. Uh, the comic book format is an invitation to illiteracy. It creates an atmosphere of cruelty and deceit, it creates a readiness for temptation, it stimulates unwholesome fantasies, it suggests criminal or sexually abnormal ideas. They furnish, the rationalis- they furnish the rationalization for them. They suggest forms of delinquent impulse, sorry. They suggest the forms a, del- a delinquent impulse may take and supply details of technique. And they may tip the scales towards maladjustment or delinquency. That's a lot of stuff that comics are doing, let me tell you. Mm-hmm. They are educating kids on being killers and criminals, according to Frederick Wertham. But that's uh, all. That's it. <laughs> they're, they're, they're serving no good purpose at all. They might as well be uh, training ma- training manuals for the mafia or something. Sure. Uh, here's a couple of choice quotes uh, from, from the book. Uh, the conquest of the American childhood by the industry was already an accomplished fact. Uh, there he's talking about the current... Uh, State of comics that, at this point, have been around really for over twenty years. Sure. Uh, So they were, you know, part part of every child's life and every person's life to some extent.
1: Yeah, they Uh, were always there. Yeah.
0: Children see solutions to all problems as simple, direct, mechanical, and violent. Which that just describes children. I don't know if that is nothing. That's that's, that's kids. uh... Kids are assholes. That's all there is to it. Another quote: "Comic books and life are connected. A bank robbery is easily translated into the rifling of a candy store. I guess
2: sure. Sure. Huh?
0: <laughs> and uh, comics as moral disarmament influences definition of right and wrong. It they blunt the finer feelings of conscience, mercy, and sympathy. They skew the view of human relationships, and they stifle the influences of art and literature."
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Wow! I mean, the <laughs> comics are some bad news, people. That's what that's that's what I'm getting out of this.
1: Yeah, we're in the wrong business. We need to <laughs> we need to get out. <laughs> I hope my grandparents don't listen to this.
0: Yeah, uh, I, I just tell them that we're talking about pornography. Something that's nice. better. You know, there that's
1: you better. go. <laughs> it's funny you mentioned that. I was talking to somebody about uh, growing up, you know, in the in the '80s and '90s, and it, it would be less embarrassing to be seen coming out of a pornography store than a comic book store. I, back at then.
0: one point, yeah, you <laughs> know. it's like
1: you cover your face coming out of the comic shop.
0: Well, in the in the in the early '90s, at least you could say, oh, there's just an investment. Yes. You know, I'm just I'm gonna I'm gonna go to college. It's all this. for college, you know. This has nothing to do with reading the stupid things, but yeah, eventually <laughs> you had to fess up to it.
1: Yeah, it didn't the, the lie was didn't last too long. <laughs> uh speaking of lies here, we got uh, some blanket statements made from uh, by Wortham here. He says here, all child drug addicts and all children drawn into the narcotics traffic. As messengers with whom we've had contact were inveterate comic book readers, so it's it's funny. It shows how different the times are, where you really didn't need to back up what you said. Yeah, um, you could say all. And uh, I, I, think, I think a lot of people realize that the all is, like, the familiar all, like, not necessarily everybody, but yeah, a lot of people.
0: But today you would get challenged on that. They would be,
1: today like, you would, like it, it,
0: 100%. It, you know, like, that's, yeah. that's
1: what it means. Yeah, today you would lose all credibility by saying that. For sure. Um, in, any, in any forum. Um, he also discusses some trends uh, that were going on in comics one of the most popular, I mean this is the one I thought of when I used to think about it, was the uh, injury to the eye motif
0: I don't know what I think. Wortham just had, you know, I like, got like
1: we talked. He about might this. have a fetish or something.
0: A fetish, or you know, some people really can't stand like f- nails on a chalkboard or te- yep. teeth on metal. I think that was his thing. Was injury to the eye it just freaked him out. Reminds me of that old Salvador Dali movie. I don't know if you ever saw it. It's an old.
1: Oh yeah, that and Melody. Yeah, where and With I kinda, the cow's eye. Oh. That scene kind of
0: freaks me out too. But I, I, I think Wortham had a special because he talked about it. uh in this book, and he talked about it a lot in the, in the hearings we're going to talk about in the next episode.
1: you got to wonder if he had any kind of childhood trauma in, uh, involving his S-
0: something. eyes. Yeah, maybe his sister poked his eye a lot.
1: He was never able to watch CBS. <laughs> <laughs> Let's see here. He, uh, he, he said that this was the, the most crime story-specific thing. You know, like, this did not have a literary counterpart. Okay. Like, where you can see that... You know, in superhero comics, you can track that to, like, old mythological heroes and whatnot. Sure,
0: yeah, you know, Robin Hood or things like that. Sure,
1: yeah. but the injury to the eye thing is just in crime comics. It uh, does not have any count upon. Uh, he said that these are, uh, like, this is the kind of violence that children and adults alike will feel in a vague, subconscious way. <laughs> Where, uh, and, and I really can't argue that, but, uh... Just, it's
0: a, I, I think it's something you know. It's it's something crazy for everyone, but as some people are just going to be more affected by it than others, you know. And I, sure. think, I think I think really what he meant to say was uh, children and adults and German psychologists will feel in a very sub- <laughs> vague subconscious way.
1: <laughs> it's, it's Funny, a lot of his. As, I don't know if we're going to go deeper into this today, but when he talks to children, he actually he brings up the eye a lot. Yeah. when he talks to the to the uh, the, the folks at the Lafarge, he had a thing. And he had really yeah. had a thing. <laughs> yeah, because uh, he would ask, uh, he would ask them like the, with like the the twenty-two caliber guns and stuff in the and the air rifles. He would ask how that would hurt somebody, and the kids would say, "Oh, you just shoot them in the eye." Yeah. And it's like he was like leading them to the eye. Um, I don't know if he's, he might have like a weird photo book at his house or something.
0: <laughs> Just eyes.
1: Because, <laughs> like we're saying yeah, here, they, the children already know that that's like the vulnerable spot on a body that's you know, sure. not covered by clothes. So, any weapon, a, a stick, a pencil, you know, anything can harm the eye irreversibly. And uh, the, this doesn't just show up in the crime comics. It also shows up in horror and uh, Western comics. He, he posited that the, uh, the Gouja stories in the Old West <laughs> were, uh, were indicative of this. <laughs> <laughs> oh man!
0: <laughs> I just, I just don't believe that the comic industry was as concerned with the, with eye injury as he you, was. That's all. They, yeah. You know what I mean? Like they were probably like, "What? Oh!" You got to figure yeah.
1: like, yeah, they're getting letters at like the E.C. office. Like, wait, w- are we doing stories about eyes? Yeah,
0: I, 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 we're talking about you know, not, you know, comics, comics where like women are being, you know, they're, they're, they're doing drugs and they're getting decapitated and they're, you know, getting, everyone's riddled with bullets, lying in pools of blood on the street. He's worried about someone had their eye poked, you know. So that really doesn't seem like the worst. That'll just make you blind, I mean, you know. Yeah, you just know, in one eye. You just want to, You have, you have <laughs> another one if you, if you didn't get poked in both of them.
1: Another trend he discussed is the uh, ads for the violent toys. Those are the guns, the knives, uh, bows and arrows, all sorts of, uh, all sorts of tots weapons. For you sure,
0: know? for sure. You know, they had a little bit of that. You know, you are a connoisseur of comic book ads. I'm a uh, big fan. So they had a little bit of that when we were young, but nothing to this. I think you could get Chinese stars, right? Yeah, you get the the ninja stars, the yeah. The ninja stars, and you know, yeah. maybe a couple of, but there was, you know, you were not, back when you look at comics from the 40s and 50s, you could get a dead-ass Bowie knife, yeah. you know what I mean, or, or like an air rifle or like an air, a, a BB pistol, you know, it was crazy.
1: Well, I mean, that, that's not saying that the comics in the 80s were safe because, you know, there are a lot of ads for laser tag. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, That's, and that's, that's some scary
0: that's stuff. That's You can with a laser. <laughs> you, could, you could evaporate.
1: You're going you're gonna to turn into dust. Um, another trend he discussed was Uh, Girls in fire. Girls being thrown in fire, not the refrigerator. (laughs)
0: This is before the back then they used to call them ice boxes. Ice boxes, throwing a girl
1: in there, and those were full of meat from the woods. That's right. So uh, so girls being thrown in a fire. This gives the impression that not only are the girls are in danger, but more importantly, that it might just become sexy time when their clothes burn off. Mm. So it uh, draws some eyes that way. Yeah, he, he has a point. He does. He does. Uh, comics also had a trend of rewriting history. And this is a silly one, but he does bring it up. Uh, comics being written as being vital to uh, important events in American history, like Superman going back in time and meeting George Washington. Sure,
0: which actually yep. did happen. As a matter of fact, I reviewed an uh, issue of World's Finest for Weird Science, DC Comics.com mm-hmm. recently, uh, where Superman and Batman, a, a guy from, I forget what, the 35th century, a guy from the distant future who's like a superman batman historian he he time travels to their time and uh he shows them his history book they wrote about them and they say this is great but a lot of these facts are wrong so through a convoluted means that i'm not i don't want to delve into now he gets them to go and change Everywhere. their acts <laughs> to to be in accord with the book and it's like who the fuck, who the hell would do that? You know what I mean? Like, what the <laughs> hell? Like, oh, I guess you got us dead to rights. You know, we don't, we don't want you to flunk freshman history. Like, well, just fucking take the book back and tell them you were
1: wrong. Yeah, anyway. or, or say you're right. Who's going to say?
0: Exactly. <laughs> what are they going to do? Are they going to get a time machine?
1: <laughs> anyway, <laughs> uh, another another trend, and we, we touched on this briefly. This is the modern modernization of classic literature. Now these are stories in, similar in theme and morals to like the grim fairy tales, Hans Christian, Christian Andersen stories. You know, yeah. just tied in with a modern twist, often including drugs, violence, um, a more contemporary violence than would have been in the older stories. Yeah, not to mention still being covered with those ads for guns and knives.
0: Which is true. I mean, no, those, are, oh, those yeah. are those are classic, uh, classic literature tropes that worked before, and they sure. they figure they work now too.
1: They st- and they still work today. Yeah. Yeah. And the last uh, trend that we're going to discuss briefly here is the uh, the trend of the bad girl. Mm-hmm. Uh, in crime comics, the women were usually depicted as being at the the bad guy or the gangster's side. Uh, it's usually they usually weren't shown in a very favorable light
0: no they were and they usually very heavily made up and they had sure. uh, slinky they were very dresses. Garish. yeah um, you know but this whole idea like that these girls would be on the side of the gangsters as if like these gangsters should be you know no one can possibly love them or be impressed by their money like what do, what do you think they were there for you know what I mean like <laughs>
1: Why you think, personality. Why,
0: why do you think these assholes attract women? You know what I mean? It, is, it isn't because of they are so moral. They're trying to convert them to, to a you know, religion or something. But uh, yeah. anyway, it's, it just shows a strange <laughs> naivete. And I bet it, it spoke to a lot of America uh, because America probably liked to believe that girls were innately or people were innately good. But the fact sure. is, my, uh, I'm sorry to tell you, my dear podcast listeners, they are not. <laughs> uh, there are some really bad people out there. Um, Also from Seduction of the Innocent, he said, uh, when comics are on display, crime does not pay, for example. Only the crime is visible to passerby to the newsstand. Other examples, and uh, I'm going to try to do the best I can. I'm going to kind of enunciate the large word on these these actual (laughs) titles of uh, comic books from the era. Lawbreakers always lose. There is no (laughs) escape for public enemies. The West thunders with the roar of guns.
1: Guns.
0: Crime can't win. Western outlaws and sheriffs, criminals on the run. And I got—I mean, especially when you look at one like Western outlaws and sheriffs. Obviously, they're really trying to say that this comic has criminals in it. Yep. So uh, you know, but this is—you know—that's what we call advertising. It's marketing. It's sure. not really a big secret why that would work. Uh, crime comics were adorned with a stamp of of authorization from the A.C.M.P., the Association of Comics Magazine Publishers, which stated they conformed to the comics code. Uh, it was Wertham's opinion that no such association did existed. Uh, not in any meaningful way, and he couldn't find them in a phone book. And he's actually exactly right. It, it was just yeah. something they wrote. There was no collusion between any publishers on what they should or shouldn't publish. Um, it might be worth saying, and we'll probably will mention again in the next episode. Uh, you know, some 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 companies did have their own internal codes. Disney did, uh, and so did Harvey, and I think uh, uh, Gold Key. I don't know if they were around back then.
1: Um, There was was a rumor that DC might have one, but they were in bed with bad folks. That's
0: right, yeah. But but often the code was was much more lax. Like the code didn't say, uh, you know, the good guy always had to win. It was more like, uh, you know, no more than five gallons of blood per page, you know, something like (laughs) that. So, you know, it wasn't exactly that strict.
1: They couldn't shoot all six bullets on one
0: page. Exactly. You know, one had to jam
1: at least. And uh, you know, the uh, we have the the Trinity here, the DC Trinity, uh, Batman, Superman and Wonder Woman, who uh well, all three of them were pretty big targets for him and they were pretty much emblematic of superhero comics. Yeah. Um he called Batman homoerotic homoerotic. Mm-hmm. Superman was a violent narcissist, and Wonder Woman was a lesbian sadomasochist. Um going a little bit deeper here, he uh was quoted as saying that Batman was like the wish dream of two homosexuals living together. <laughs>
0: This is (laughs) probably uh, the most famous thing Wortham's known for is his his allusion to Batman and Robin's homosexual relationship. Yeah.
1: And he he more he more compares it to a pedophilic relationship between the two that was initiated by Robin. Mm. Like Batman is just the uh, you know he's just the kindly dude who's there, and uh, Robin's the one pushing for uh, more. Um, he felt that this uh, relationship being you know so prevalent in the in the series helps facilitate and embolden gay feelings. And we did touch yesterday that uh, not yesterday last week that. Uh, that he was part of that movement to uh, re-educate
0: uh, gay men. It's true, yeah. And and at this time... It, that was just current. Yeah, it was just Homosexuality was would, have been, would have been considered a mental illness. Yeah. Uh, but it's important that, again, like we talked yeah. about before, he's not saying that Batman and Robin will make anyone gay.
2: No, It's no. that and it he will embolden actually...
0: your feelings. Your, the, he, he admits that the feelings have to be there first.
1: Yeah, and, and he never actually comes out and says Batman was gay. No. You know, a lot of reading into is required by for that. And, you know, we're, we're looking at this in in 2016, so we're seeing, like, the Rainbow Batman. Yeah. And, and, like, the Rainbow wasn't really indicative of that back then. So it's not, he wasn't out of the closet as the Rainbow Batman.
0: It's, <laughs> it's, you uh, know, but 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 just like when when we were younger, reading comic books, you read, you see what you want to see. You know? Of course. I, I, he does have a point that, you know, if you're the type of person that is having... Uh, struggling
1: with those kind of struggling feelings. Struggling with those
0: feelings, then Batman and Robin might appear to have that kind of relationship. Uh, or even, you know, if you're if you're somebody... You know, I, th- I think the killing joke is a, is a great example. Hmm. Uh, a lot of people, there's a debate today that, that the Joker sexually abused or raped Barbara Gordon in that book. Sure. And if you haven't read that book, you don't know what we're talking about, you should go and do it and come back to this podcast. Certainly. Uh, I read it recently. I read it for that reason, and I did not see it myself, but I could see how you could imprint that, if that's what you know, if you're bringing that, if you're if you had that experience in your life, or if that's uh, a, a prevalent fear in your life, or whatever it is,
1: or if it serves your narrative,
0: or if it, <laughs> if, if it, if it works, you know, whatever it is, <laughs> but you, you can put that there, you know, it, it's not impossible, It just you have to make a uh, narrative leap, you anywhere.
1: have to read into it, yeah, yeah. and uh. See here, leaving Batman for a moment here, we got Superman, who we had a quote here saying that he's a disregard for the democratic processes combined with idealization of vigilantism. Uh, and he was compared at the time uh, most often to the Ubermensch. Yeah. Um, he was also compared to. Uh, but the Ubermensch was the Nazi one, right?
0: Well, I mean, Nietzsche wrote in German. He actually. He oh, well, so word. it's the same thing. So it's yeah. the same thing. I mean, Ubermensch is Superman, Superman German, in so. German. Nietzsche came up with it. Hitler kind of ran with it. Uh, it's it's just the German word for Superman. The whoever whoever says it. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, see, because he compared him to uh, Nietzsche's version, uh, and he was quoted as saying, When you go to women, don't forget the whip. <laughs> oh,
0: really? Okay. <laughs> uh, yes,
1: and uh, <laughs> whatever that means. And uh, Wortham uh, does a little bit of Godwinning God before it was cool. He says, uh, He's got a big S on his uniform. We should, I suppose, be thankful it's not an SS. Oh, look at that. <laughs> mm-hmm. He lost his forum debate. <laughs> And uh, Wonder Woman, he says that there's a different view of Wonder Woman, depending on if you're a boy or a girl. Boys just see her as a frightening image. Girls see her as a morbid ideal. Uh, He was quoted as saying, she's physically very powerful, tortures men, has her own female following, and she is the cruel, quote-unquote, phallic woman.
0: I'm not really you know. sure exactly what that means. I guess that she, <laughs> maybe you know, it's
1: more of his fetish. I don't know. Maybe
0: maybe he thinks when she pulls down those uh, hot pants, she's got a little something going on down there. But I don't know. He, Never looked at it that he's way. Just
1: afraid of getting a lasso in the eye. Yeah. <laughs> um, Wonder Woman was created by uh, William Mosden. He was he lived with two women. He had a polyamorous relationship, including having children with both. Uh, it's said that he based various aspects of Wonder Woman on both of his lovers. So uh, I think one of them was more mature and one of them was younger. Yes. Uh, and uh, he based a lot of it on both of them. Um, to play with the, uh, the whole lesbian thing here, uh, Wonder, Wonder Woman hung out with uh, a crew called the Holiday Girls. And uh, doing a little bit of digging, we find that in the 30s, holiday boy or holiday girl, they were slang terms for being gay or lesbian. Mm.
0: Uh, but Now, I, I, I just want to cut in for one second, hmm. though. It, it's, it's really worth saying, though, that uh, in the Golden Age, Wonder Woman, you know, her weakness was to be shackled. Yep. Um, it was because they, she had, you know, her people, the Amazonians, had been shackled. It would, it's a long story. Uh, so it basically happened every issue. There was spankings and whatever. And this was when William Moul- William Moul- Martin, when William Martin Moulton, right, am I getting that right? William Marston. Sorry. Yes. i try it again. And that was when William Marston was writing and drawing it uh, very crudely, I might add. Um, I don't care what anyone says. I don't, I don't want to, you know, this isn't a huge bit. This is something he dug. This is something a lot of people yeah. dug to see some sadomasochism. And yes, men would also be shackled. The whole shackling and whipping. This all went on. Uh, I don't want to make it sound too salacious, but but this was a regular part of the comic. By this time, by 1954, and in fact, pretty much since 48 or 47, uh, Molten had not been on the comic. For for oh, I'm sorry, Marston yeah. had not been on a comic for, for quite a while. Uh, I think Ross Andrew was already drawing it at this point, but whoever it was, uh, that had not been part of Wonder Woman for many years by this yeah. point. You know, he was really digging back into. There's the, a deep cut. Yeah, know. the 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 old days of Wonder Woman, which is not really totally fair.
1: No, no, and uh, you know, in addition to to badgering on the uh, the superhero books, he also had uh, a bit of a thing for the love slash romance, romance comic,
0: <laughs> which is amazing. <laughs> like, why? <laughs> I
1: know. He says here it uh, it sets false ideals for female re- readership, and the quote he gives it is uh, "love at first sight." Mm-hmm. Um, He says that it stimulated, quote-unquote, the male readership, and they were referred to as headlight comics among the uh, youngsters at his clinic. Mm -hmm. And uh, he provides an anecdote here that one news dealer reported a sale of 30 love comics to a sailor in his mid-20s.
0: This is the day before you could buy porn on the newsstands, folks, too. This is, a Playboy wouldn't come out for, uh, actually, a couple of years after this, so... Uh, I guess that's yeah, you had to do what you had to do.
1: Our brothers got to eat. You know? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> now, uh, according to uh, some more of his research here, it promoted and glamorized theft in the name of romance. So, what you do for in the name of love is, you know, all bets are off, basically. Right. Uh, it also promoted greed and consumerism and uh, depicted violence as well. Some of uh, some of his favorite titles: we have uh, "Intimate Love," "My Desire," "My Love Life," "Love Scandals." and love
0: lawn, and i mean i think he really saw these as salacious titles you know these were sure. the uh you know uh porno titles of his of the day like a, as crazy as it could get on the stands but you know all this really applies to any romance novel going back for a couple of hundred years you know what i mean and, like yeah, appealing title, to women's appealing to people's you know <laughs> libido libido is not invented by comics or even perfected no. at this point so uh that
1: the titles they're, they're pretty loaded. I mean, could you imagine going to any newsstand if there were a newsstand today, any place where they sell periodicals and you see something called Intimate Love? Yeah, I what, would. What not... are you gonna think?
0: <laughs> <laughs> I would definitely think appliances were involved. I don't know, that's just how we are in the 21st century. Be like something,
1: it's a DIY book,
0: yeah, something too intimate, you know, it kind of <laughs> scares me. Um. So here's here's comic book syndrome. Typical tales told by Tots to the Doc, a sentence written by Chris that I had to repeat. Um, (laughs) Child feels spontaneously guilty about reading the violent, sadistic, and criminal stories and the fantasy stimulated by them. He's made to feel guilty about them by others. He reads them surreptitiously. He lies and says he does not read crime comics. Uh, He hides the crime Superman titles under cartoon books, sort of like you might have done in Study Hall. Where you, mm-hmm. you put a comic behind your, uh, you know, science textbook. Yeah. yeah. So he's, uh, you know, hiding the uh, Superman inside the Walt Disney comic. Uh, buys books with money earmarked for other things. Uh, Chris never ate school lunch, but always got lunch money, or steals <laughs> the money to buy them. Uh, this is, you know, what a horrible thing! Kids are, are stealing money to buy the things that they want. This is a brand new invention, folks.
1: And this is this is very comic specific, I'm sure.
0: I know, yeah. There, there was nothing else that they wanted. Comics were were truly the uh, marijuana of the of nursery. It's the bassinet, whatever. yeah. Yeah,
1: because <laughs> candy hadn't been invented yet.
0: But you know, even though even though he did rail against horror and romance comics uh, and westerns also, which he also called uh, crime comics, his main push was against violence in comics uh and and there's some good evidence for some violent comics out there uh Knights of Horror which was drawn by Joe Schuster is depictions of the Superman cast in risque and adult situations now it's as i recall it's not like exactly you don't see Superman
1: no or, he's not yes, in his costume or anything it's just
0: it looks just like them cuz the same yeah, guy drawing same them. artist yeah uh, although it would have been years years later he probably hadn't drawn Superman in the in the comics now well for over a decade years? i would oh, think yeah. yeah uh and you know he he did do the strip for a while but i bet by now he probably was not drawing superman so yeah i mean you know chris showed me some of these and it's it's Pretty sadomasochistic, you know. It's yeah. It's whips. It's corsets. It's leather. It's it's people tied up. It's all that stuff.
1: And if uh, you don't like Jimmy Olsen, you can you can see him get spanked. That's a lot. right. That's nice. <laughs>
0: or or if you ever want to see Lois, you know, get spanked, there she is. Yeah, there's always that. Too. Um, this is something that is really worth its own uh, investigation. It's such a fascinating thing. We only have a little bit of time for it, but uh, the Brooklyn Thrill Killers case. These were Jewish neo-Nazis, aged 15 to 18 that killed and tortured several homeless people during the summer of 1954. This was in Brooklyn, right, Chris?
2: Yeah. This yeah. was,
0: uh, I think, in South Brooklyn. Uh, the ringleader, Jack Koslow, claimed to have gotten most of their ideas for their rampage through comics, through comic books, even procuring some of the torture tools from the ads inside there. And, uh, yeah, he wasn't. it wasn't the sea monkeys. It was the aforementioned, <laughs> uh, you know, guns and knives and, and other weapons. Um... Uh, we're not gonna uh, are we gonna talk about the thing right now about uh what he said in, in, in confidence or
1: well we we'll I think that'll that comes pretty much later. go into the Kefau, sketch, yeah. yeah so uh, so stay tuned for that one stay gonna, that come, yeah. that
0: comes up next day, yeah, next episode Miss, I wasn't sure yeah, mr
1: Coslow is uh, he's he's kind of important
0: that's right he's he, he will rear his weird looking head again <laughs> uh, also took on some social injustices uh, in the comics but not in a positive way um, uh, women were seen as inferior in victims, which was brand new to literature It had never been done before. Women had never been used as a plot device, ever.
1: And it never, never be used again, too? No, so. never. It was only in comics this
0: happened. <laughs> uh, minorities were seen as inferior or wrong or bad, also something only unique to comics at the time. It was incredible. Mm-hmm. Uh, <laughs> racial and ethnic stereotypes are given nourishment and perpetuation by comic book reading. That part is probably true. <laughs> <laughs> it doesn't matter. Of the, of the time, yeah, there were some pretty racist <laughs> comics, especially going back into the 40s as we talked about sure. last week. Uh, children shown comics they've not yet read and asked to pick out the bad man, they will normally choose between, uh, based on racial or ethnic stereotypes, which is uh, probably true for media today. Also, juvenile sure. gangs, uh, they attack dark-skinned others uh you know is that new is that comics i don't know
1: i mean um, a lot of that is you got to figure how many of those are crime of opportunity how many? it's just that, that's that he's stretching it with that one i, I think. think
0: so too I, you know we talked before about how in the post war this this allowed this idle time for gangs to protect their blocks and, yeah. and cities around the country and definitely in, in new york city uh, sure. they were divided by ethnic lines so uh, you know the, it, it's not it's not not racism no, uh, but it it's not exactly like a taught. It's not like they they read a comic and they saw yeah. a you know, no, uh, they weren't of a Puerto Rican and they went. Then they took that. It was it was just sort of. Part was, of daily this life. was the
1: earliest strain theory. This is ethnic strain theory. Is all it is that yeah. uh, where you know anybody who looks different, it's just a natural defense. Uh, whether they're lighter skinned or darker skinned, it's if they're in your neighborhood, it's you know it's gonna be something.
0: Yeah, we're gonna make something happen here. Mm-hmm. Uh, the dark-skinned assailant in most rape-like situations in comics and in film of the time I mean, it's what he's true. saying here is 100% true uh, white girls always drawn with their breasts covered Color girls have their breasts fully exposed I don't know if that's totally true, but I, I do kind of know what he's talking about. Like,
1: it's all, the, like the kind of, almost depicting them as savages.
0: That was what, you know, that's often, yeah. often black people in comics uh, they were, you know, depicted as a grass skirt wearing Africans and...
1: Their bone, with a bone through their nose. It's often
0: some, some craziness yeah. like that so, you know, very rarely you would not or, or they would be a, a porter. You know sure. I mean, Yeah. I, I don't. I can't think of any time I've looked at a golden age comic when there was, you know, a, <laughs> a black guy even like whatever selling a hot dog you know what I mean it's always always white people Mm -hmm. uh and the heroes were always Nordic looking strong men emboldening an impression of human perfection in young readership which I Mm. would have to agree with
1: yeah yeah and uh they I don't know if you mentioned here about uh the Nazi magazine Sturmer he he compares the comics to that uh, in teaching anti-semitism doesn't really go deep in that but uh but he does mention it. I
0: mean, the, the crazy thing here is, uh, and someday we will talk about the beginnings of the comic industry. But sure. it was pretty much started by all Jewish people. I mean, when we, <laughs> when we talked about Le- Lev Gleason, you know, he made a he made a deal with uh, whoever it was, Hiram Shlomo, and you know what I mean. And William <laughs> Gaines. The, the, these are not these are not your waspish no, names of uh, you know the, the, the movie screen. So the the idea that they would be preaching anti-Semitism is so ludicrous. uh, Isn't it? (laughs) He's so way off base right there.
1: Uh, the, another thing, he uh, he considered uh, comics as uh, a way of retooling for illiteracy. Um, many ad- adolescent publications, including at the time, Children's Digest and Tween Age Digest. I didn't think that we invented the tweens until much later. Oh, but I, I didn't guess think we so. Did.
0: Either. That's amazing.
1: Yeah, <laughs> they were uh, heavily integrating comic sections into their normally text-heavy magazines. So, I mean, they now now comics are getting involved with these you know kids and tween magazines. Yeah. And uh, children were, I, I, it's almost like lowering the bar because children were seen as being unable to keep up with the articles in the magazines or in just their grade-appropriate books. Um, the uh, He gives a statistic here that one out of five of Americans are illiterate and three out of five adults do not read well. Cool. And instead of reading books, magazines, or anything like that, they read comic books. Yeah. Hmm. Um, see here. The epidemic of reading troubles among children is attributed to the comic book reading. He calls uh, he calls the kids bookworms without books. And uh, in the time that comics were getting poppin', uh, the circulation of juvenile books in libraries decreased. Um, so, you know, the comics were going up, and, you know, the the real quote-unquote yeah, books, the text nobody wanted to read them anymore. Prose books, yeah. Yes. Uh, Libraries were trying to use, they they would even use tactics, like having a a picture of Superman saying, Superman recommends this book. That's right. And that didn't work. It just made kids want to read Superman. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, And he does address hereditary learning disabilities, and he says that the hereditary factor, and, and this is all scientific, he says, has been grossly exaggerated. So uh, he calls it symptomatic of a reactionary attitude and predicated on relieving us of the responsibility.
0: I mean that's just amazing. You know what I mean? I mean he's yeah. he's literally saying that you know learning disabilities uh, don't exist or that you know that they can't be passed along and it's like so so flies in the face of common.
1: Yeah, because you you'll never, get a, today. Yeah, you'll, you'll never get a yeah you you'll never get a one to one correlation. But there's too much research that indicates that it's that yeah. there is a, an hereditary factor to it. Sure. Um, and he uh, considers he he says that comics they retard or even interfere with the reading readiness, and we get we get even more uh, scientific, and we also mention the eyes. Uh, he says that it does uh, by reading comics you do specific harm to the acquisition of fluent left-to-right eye movement. Which I don't know if there's any truth to that. I don't even think there was any kind of test you could give for that, what even today.
0: What is fluent left to right eye movement? I mean, I guess you know. I mean, I guess you know. It's your eyes move left to right. That's the best you can do, right? I mean, what the hell? I know, right? This is sort of go, you know, this is sort of goes back to the video games too. Except there we went the other way that it improves your mm-hmm. hand-eye coordination. Yep, well, yeah, it yep. does. If you have to play Pac-Man for a living, you have great hand-eye coordination. <laughs> but there's more to it, you know, depending on what your yes. skill is. But all of this, as we've seen. Uh, Right from the book, Seduction of the Innocent, this is all very scientific, isn't it, Chris? All very Mm well-researched, meticulous, all right? All of it is on the up and up, except that it wasn't. Uh, Much (laughs) of the supporting data in this book is cherry-picked to best serve the narrative. Uh, As we've been talking about the entire time, he had lies of omission. Uh, The things that he didn't say sometimes were more telling than the things that he did. And uh, we'll get into a little more of that later on. Uh, and he had a lot of guided questions to his, uh, uh, his patients, you know, kind of drawing them to the eye injury, to the eye motif, if that's what his thing was that day. Cause uh,
1: today, uh, to, to cut in here, the, uh, guided questions are, they're even considered things you do uh, without saying a word these days. Um, I've taken several, uh, several counseling classes where a lot of people fail the part where they, uh, there's somebody crying and they go and they reach for the box of tissues. To give it to them to, the, to their patient, yeah. you're not supposed to do that huh. because you're guiding them. Even though you're not saying a word, you're guiding them somewhere. You're, they, there's two different directions they can go. They can either think that they're, that they're crying is annoying the clinician and yeah. they'll stop, or they're going to say they're going to feel validated in the fact that they're crying. That's so the thing. Yeah, gonna,
0: I, I would say so you're, you're saying this is, a, this is a space to cry. You know exactly.
1: So you're you're interfering with what could come next.
0: Wow. Well, well then I guess next time uh, I make my wife cry, I'll just let it go. You know, yeah. Don't see, give her the tissues. See, where, the see tissues. where that takes me. <laughs> 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 no, that, that, that is very interesting, and uh, you know that, that comes up in uh, you know all the time today with with police uh, questioning and stuff like that, about how they guide people. Uh, so Wortham's wife Hesketh transferred his archives to the Library of Congress in the early 1980s, not long after he died. Uh, but they were under embargo until the late spring of 2010, which I, I, I don't know why. Uh, yeah. I could not find out why. Only the historian Bart Beatty seems, and he's an Australian, I think, uh, mm-hmm. had access to these files. And he wrote uh, what for a long time was the only book based on these, uh, the, the actual research, and that was Frederick Wertham and the Critique of Mass Culture. Uh, a very, I haven't read it, but my reading about it is it's a very congratulatory Supportive yeah. book of Wortham and his findings, uh, but then Carol Tilly decided to dive into these archives and eventually wrote "Seducing the Innocent," uh, <laughs> subtitle: Frederick Wortham and the falsifications that helped condemn comics. A natural subtitle. It is really, I mean, it's almost like you have just turned this whole thing around on yeah. its ear. Um, a lot of this is going to come from her article, which was uh, ran in Alter Ego magazine, number one twenty-eight from September twenty fourteen. This was first printed in the journal of the Information and Culture Journal in the University of Texas. But as you might imagine, I have better access to Alter Ego magazine (laughs) than uh, any uh, university journal. So I I just want to make it clear that this this is from her work uh, with the original archives that are at the Library of Congress. And she found some very interesting facts.
1: Yeah, he classified things uh, like daydreaming and restlessness and masturbation and nightmares in the same categories that included juvenile delinquency and truancy, padding his overall number of applicable cases to the study. So it's, uh, you know, you got a wide pool when you're working with children, but you got to make it even wider.
0: I know. I mean, mean, you know, so you're going to pick the kids that masturbate. So you're going to pick every kid. Is that basically what you did? You didn't turn down. Every kid applies in this situation.
1: (laughs) Used the uh, case studies from Bellevue and Queens County Hospital where subjects were more likely to be mentally disturbed so you know talk about the leading question you don't even need to lead these because yeah. they they're already uh, they're already somewhere where they're getting help um, <laughs> the girl who said "I like the one where the man puts a needle in the woman's eye <laughs> <laughs> Was Dr. Hilde Morse's patient at Kings County Hospital?
0: Yeah, that wasn't even his. That that was a famous quote from the book that will get quoted in uh, the the hearings. Yes. Uh, but yeah, that wasn't even his patient. And and, and oh. as we mentioned last episode, he was I think a head uh, psychologist at Bellevue, and uh, yeah, he was a big deal at Queens County Hospital also. So
1: yeah, he was a known guy. He was a he was a he was a SME. He was a subject matter expert. That's right. Uh the, that girl with the uh, needle in the eye, uh, she lay, she was admitted because she wanted to kill her younger brother and it's a fantasy she had held for uh, 6 years.
2: Yeah.
1: That's that's pretty wild. it's um,
0: kind of crazy to have that but but you know, it preceded but the her interest eye. in comics and her thing with the eye, you know, I mean, maybe she was yes. cut from the same cloth.
1: Yeah, they they go to the same club. Um, (laughs) Some supporting cases for the Batman and Robin homosexuality claim uh, attributed the quotes like, I think I put myself in the position of Robin. I did want to have relations with Batman. So, huh. Um, there were two men aged 16 and 17 having known they were gay since they were 10 years old and they were in a relationship with each other. That's who, uh, who said that. Yeah. Uh, the younger kid is the one who said the above quote. The, uh, the older one is going to say the following. Uh, the only suggestion of homosexuality may be that they seem to be close to one another and were uh, them left out. <laughs> another omission like my friend and I.
0: Yeah, so these, these were two guys already in a homosexual relationship. Yep. Who were being talked to about Batman and Robin, and they, you know, it just gave their thoughts on it. But it wasn't like they, Batman and Robin pushed them to do anything. You know, they were already in a committed relationship.
2: Yeah, they
1: they allude to the fact that you really have to, you kind of have to read into it because he said they just seemed like they were close.
0: Yeah, it's uh, it's it's it definitely casts all the research in a different light. This is one of my favorite ones for obvious this. growth. Gross reasons, but uh, a 13-year-old boy that was under counseling for urinating in another boy's mouth said he was a special, Wortham said he was a special devotee of Batman, and uh, in Seduction, the quote of this boy is, sometimes I read them over and over again. They show off a lot. I don't remember Batman's name, but the boy's name is Robin. They live together. It could be that Batman did something with Robin like I did with the younger boy. Batman could have saved the boy's life. Robin looks something like a girl. He, only has trun- he has only trunks on. Uh, in the files, it's a little <laughs> bit different, but, but in significant ways. Uh, he starts out, my favorites are the war comics. I have read Batman. I liked it once, but not so much now. They show off a lot. I don't know Batman's name, but the boy's name is Robin. They live together. It could be that Batman did something with Robin like I did with the younger boy. Batman could have saved this boy's life. He may have made him take his thing in his mouth. Robin looks something like a girl. He has only trunks on. I read Crime Does Not Pay, also Superman. So this kid's not even reading Batman nope. anymore, you know? He's not a devotee of Batman. He, like, thinks he's, he, he's over it. Yep. And uh, obviously has ideas that go beyond Batman, <laughs> you know? <laughs> like, uh, he's got feelings, and Wortham doesn't mention that the younger boy, uh, who, whose mouth was urinated into, had sodomized this boy before the, he was arrested. So there was, there was a lot more of this story than <laughs> Batman and Robin. Uh, and there were there were a lot of cases. You know, we're, we're not going to be able to go into everything Carol Tilly no. uncovered. It was so much, but uh, there were several cases where the quotes were attributed to one person when they were said by uh, more than one person, or even during group therapy sessions sure. at Queens County Hospital and uh, probably Bellevue.
1: Mm-hmm. Now, for uh, all the belief that he has in uh, psychobiology, he neglected to mention certain aspects of a young person's home life. You know, you, you can't leave out that they may have come from abusive homes, uh, alcoholism, poverty. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, he treated many other many of their parents as well as the children. Yeah. So he would he would probably know what's going on in the homes. Um, in the uh, introduction, he makes the claim that children with a hostile home life because he, so he doesn't totally not mention it. Yeah. But he says he says that those are the ones that would more likely identify with violent comics. So which which is it? yeah which what leads to what
0: exactly Yeah, it's a very good point.
1: Yeah, because it's either either one leads to the other or, or, or the other way around.
0: Yeah, well, I mean, I mean, the way he tells it, you'd think the comics were making the home life unstable. How was, exactly. how was that happening?
1: You know? <laughs> <laughs> and uh, many of the arguments they were used to show that only the most brutal or violent elements of the story are the ones that were remembered. So uh, it's yeah, the. The wording is kind of suspect because you know the violent bits are going to have the biggest impression, but it's difficult to say that they are the only things that the children would remember. Yeah. So it, it's more guided, more guided questioning from uh, from them there.
0: Yeah, I mean, if you if you ask any kid today or then of you know age ten or eleven, did you like the part where the you know guy punched the other person to the moon? Yeah, they did like that part, you know, but that doesn't mean that's all that, that they liked about it. Sure. Um, there's so much. I mean, this, this article is tremendous, and it doesn't actually even encompass all of the uh, archives. There are boxes and boxes and boxes of Wortham's research. So we've we've only just scratched the surface. Mm-hmm. If you get your hands on that issue of Alter Ego. Uh, you can you can buy it electronically as a PDF off of their website. Uh, Two Morrows, right? Yeah. T W O Um It's worth it. it's worth checking out. It's fascinating stuff. Uh, so Wertham was not really on the up and up. Uh, his research was flawed. Uh, mm-hmm. Yet, he was still able to stir up a lot of anti-comic sentiment and really galvanize a movement in this country to get rid of comics and uh, stop their influence. Um, comics fought back. Mm-hmm. He, he was lampooned. He was uh, depicted as Dr. Frederick Muttontop. Yes, so, me uh, dead. A, a, uh, <laughs> that's right. Yeah, a child psychologist who returns home to deliver a speech, only to re- be reminded that he read things far, in, far worse in his youth. Uh, he was featured on the cover of a crime comic with his mouth covered in adhesive tape. Uh, crime, among other comics at the time, began featuring signed endorsements from psychiatrists to counter Wortham's rally, and that's what he was talking about in his article from 48. Uh, depicted as nep psychologist Frederick Freud, who gives his patients horrible advice, <laughs> and bill Gates, i'm not sure i think it was al i think it was bill Gaines wrote an editorial to him in mad magazine mm-hmm. uh in 1954 essentially defending his position that you know this this is not these aren't the worst things for kids but things were coming to a head yep. um this book among other incidents that we're going to get to will eventually lead to uh the trials, the the Senator Estes Kefauver hearings, yes, uh, about juvenile delinquency that took place in 1954, and we're going to tell you all about them in the next, next episode. That's right, <laughs> next time, uh, because boy, have we talked a long time now. Yes, uh, folks, I hope you like the long podcast. Please, uh, if you can give us some feedback, let us know. Do you like the longer version? Do you like a shorter version? Uh, was this too complete? Uh, what did you think? What did we get wrong? Uh, sure. please, please write to us at Weird DC Comics at Gmail dot com. Uh, if you want to follow us on Twitter, Chris is at Ace Comics and uh, I'm at Reggie Reggie. And I tell you here and I tell you also on our segment, uh, The Cosmic Treadmill on the Weird Science Podcast, that Chris has a blog called the Chris is an Infinite Earths blogspot dot com where he reviews uh, an old DC comic every single day. Um, great stuff, uh, really funny, also has pictures of ads. Yes, and, uh, <laughs> one of my out. favorite parts. That's right, yeah, the, the, the ads, uh, that really is what he, he brings to the table and shows you that he is dealing with the original article, folks, not a reprint or a digital version. So uh, I think that'll do it for this week. Next week we're going to do the Kefauver hearings. Yes. Uh, do you have anything else for the people, Chris?
1: No, just uh thanks for uh, thanks for checking us out the first time. Hope you hope you enjoyed it and hope you, you came back for more. Yep,
0: yeah, and let us know, folks, and uh until next week, make sure to keep it historically weird.
2: I was working in the lab late one night, when my eyes beheld an eerie sight. For my monster from his slab began to rise. And suddenly, to my surprise, he did the, he did the monster man It was a graveyard smash He did the mash It got on in a flash He did the mash He did the monster mash From my laboratory in the castle east To the master bedroom where the vampires